Kazakhstan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favour in his sight, let let him send me to the city of Judah, where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple, and for the city wall, and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests." So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sambalat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal, the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me, and what the king had said to me. They replied, Let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic 
write to it. Amen. Those who were here uh, last week will have um, hopefully enjoyed Diane's sermon. Diane was um, just a little bit excited, I think, about the book of Nehemiah. Do you think that's true? Yeah, absolutely. And the faith and the vision and the commitment of this man and the part that he played in overseeing the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Well, you'll be pleased to hear that I share that excitement this morning. I uh, looked back through my records and couldn't believe that I hadn't preached on the book of Nehemiah in all the 30 years since I first preached. But I have heard many sermons on it. And Nehemiah is such a compelling story. I've been rereading it this week in my own personal devotional times. And it's uh, a book we're going to be focusing on over the next week as I go back to uh, Hazelmere to the youth camps and we'll use it as material in our daily leaders' meetings to encourage our leaders. If you haven't uh, read it, I do encourage you to do so. There's one or two chapters that could be described as a little bit uh, mundane and tedious, lists of names and numbers, but the whole story is a great example of, of God's provision through Nehemiah. And if you did miss last week in chapter 1, then do go to the website and uh, all of the Sunday morning sermons at 10.30 are on there, so there's a chance to listen again. In chapter 1, we had the focus on Nehemiah seeing a need and doing something about it, being filled with compassion for his people and grieving over a city in ruins. We had Nehemiah crying out to God in confession and in concern, as his people had returned from exile in Babylon to a crumbling city. But Nehemiah's story didn't finish with compassion and concern, because the sorrow of his heart led to action, as we'll discover. It reminds me of my uh, go-to Christian book of the last 10 years. I would have waved it before you, but it seems that it's always out on loan, and it is at the moment. It's a book called Holy Discontent by Bill Hybels. And it asks the question, what are the things that break our hearts in God's world? And what are we actually doing about those things? How does our holy discontent of the injustices of God's world bear fruit and lead us into action. Well, in chapter 2 that we look at today, Nehemiah is spurred into action. He prays, he plans, he prepares, and he gets stuck in. And the key to his effectiveness is clear. He has such a deep trust and faith in God to provide for him. He has an enormous task ahead of him, and he appears to be completely ill-equipped. He appeared to be lacking credibility. Effectively, he's the wine waiter in the royal palace, the cupbearer. Nice job if you can get it. Although, of course, it isn't really because the need for a cupbearer is because of a fear that the king's cup might be poisoned. So if someone has got there first, you're the one who's going to get it. And he approaches the king to ask permission for time off to go and rebuild the city walls in Jerusalem. And he's apprehensive. And it's a big ask, isn't it, to expect the king to give him letters of commendation and to give him time off from his important role. Nehemiah appeared to lack authority. 
The role of wine waiter was an important job. It required someone to be trustworthy. But why should he, of all people, take on this massive project? And he appeared to be lacking hope. What an enormous task it was to rebuild those city walls, to mobilize a dejected group of people, to spur them into action. But he believes and trusts in a faithful and a powerful God. I vividly remember helping out at uh, a children's holiday club in Chorley Wood many years ago. Uh, we had a thousand children on Chorley Wood Common in a massive marquee, all sorts going on. One of the other volunteers there that week was uh, Bishop Lee, way before he got ordained or got made bishop. And we were facing this great logistical task of organizing this holiday club for a thousand children of a hundred leaders. And I remember someone at some point during that week using this phrase. The power behind us is greater than the task before us. The power behind us is greater than the task before us. And when we step out in faith, our all-powerful God equips us and provides for us. And Nehemiah knew that God would provide for him. And it's really striking as we look at Nehemiah chapter 2, how he looks to God at every stage and credits God at every stage. If you've got a Bible nearby, do feel free to uh, open it again to Nehemiah chapter 2. Some of the key verses uh, on the screen here, where Nehemiah gives glory to God. So in verse 5, we find him in conversation with the king, and he's feeling anxious. But he writes, Then I prayed to the God in heaven. Prayer was at the heart of all that he was doing. He didn't rely on his own wisdom and strength. He cried out to God. And then verse 8, Because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. He's giving credit and glory to God. Verse 12, I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. Verse 17, in fact, I think it's probably verse 18, to his potential army of workers. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me. He's referencing God. He's giving the credit to God rather than himself. And then in the face of mockery and ridicule, and there's plenty of that in the book of Nehemiah, I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. He's looking to his God. You get the idea? All the way through, he looks to God and gives credit to God. To God be the glory, great things he has done. Or using the words of a modern song, our God is greater, our God is stronger, our God is higher than any other. Now, I think if I was retelling a story of great success, I'd be tempted to emphasize the part that I had played in it all. Because at at my heart, I'm a proud man. I want others to know that I'm pretty good at certain things. It's very easy to big myself up. And yet Nehemiah, in describing the events, yes, he does tell of what he's done, the contribution that he's made, but he makes sure that God is the hero of the hour. He himself takes no credit. I wonder how much we give glory to God in our successes. But whilst giving glory to God, he does use his human skills, themselves, of course, gifts from God. Nehemiah is a planner. His preparation is thorough. He's a great project manager. There's several 
great project managers here in this congregation. He makes sure he gets the backing of the king. He makes sure he's got letters of commendation to ensure safe passage to Jerusalem. He ensures he's got high-quality timber for the rebuilding work. He did some reconnaissance work. He did a site visit, undertook a thorough examination of what was required, and he made sure that he went into the project with eyes open, aware of the full extent of the task. Now, not all of us have that level of attention to detail, but let's be grateful to God for those who do. Within the life of the church, within the wider world, in their work settings, in all sorts of different community settings as well. People who ensure that things are done well. People who ensure that things are thought through. People who find ways of overcoming the obstacles in their paths. If we're to look at our own reordering project and the plans are still there in the foyer, we must surely give thanks for and pray for the Building for Life team committed to what's been quite a long and frustrating process in seeing vision become reality. They certainly had to keep looking to God and trusting him. And then there's a work in Asoya in Moldova, the church building that's taking place through the tithe from our giving to the reordering project here. Martin Brown and I had uh, a total privilege a few weeks ago of going to meet Jerry Partridge, who's the new CEO of, of TEN, Transform Europe Now, formerly Your Evangelism. And uh, Jerry had just got back from Moldova, and he'd been to Asoya, met up with uh, Misa, the pastor there, and he'd seen the building work going on firsthand. The leaders in Moldova, others from TEN, had a vision, a vision for a new church building. It seemed far-fetched in human terms, Here they were in the poorest country in Europe, a small community with just a few believers, and yet they prayed, they had vision, they trusted God, and God has provided for them through us. A plot was purchased and cleared. You can see that plot. Doesn't look too optimistic to start with, does it? But now the plot's been cleared, the walls have gone up, the foundations have been dug, the roof is on, the windows will be in shortly. And then they'll begin to kit the building out. A large church meeting area, but also a day center to benefit the whole community. A small upper floor area for some children's work. And already, before there are people in there, that project is having an enormous impact on the local community. People are stopping as they pass by to ask what's going on. People are asking about the motivation for this project. People are turning to Christ as a result. There's something of the Nehemiah in that story. The project is a big ask, but the people are full of faith, and they haven't held back. And I'm excited because we're in discussion with Ten about a group of us from Christchurch going out to Sawyer in early summer 2017 to see the completed building and to meet the folks there firsthand. If that's something you're interested in, there'll be more details in the autumn. But the principles of this chapter don't just apply to massive building projects. They apply to the whole of life. Because there are many situations where we might feel 
ill-equipped, out of our depth, fearful. Many situations where we might see a need but feel ill-equipped to respond. Maybe responding to the demands of a child or a grandchild of additional needs. Maybe getting involved in a community initiative which you know will make demands on your time and your energies. Whatever we're doing, where do we look to for our strength? And who gets the glory when it all comes together? Nehemiah points beyond himself to our God in heaven. He challenges us to pray. He challenges us to trust. He challenges us to believe that God will provide. And as he does so, he challenges us to give thanks to God and to give him the glory. May that be true for us too, as it was for Nehemiah. Amen.